Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us this time in Berlin. And not only in Berlin, but in my apartment in the office where I record every week. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. Okay, so in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about uh, the economics of snow. It's been very cold here this week. Uh, I just brought in Adam from the cold and we had a cup of hot tea before recording. So snow struck us as a kind of appropriate topic. But first, we're going to be doing something more from the news. And the data point there is 10, as in 10 months. That's how long the war in Ukraine has been ongoing. It's been the central news story of this year in some ways, an outright interstate war in the middle of Europe of a kind that, you know, had no shortage of economic dimensions from all the spending on weapons to the destruction of cities and infrastructure to the imposition of unprecedented sanctions. And of course, the war has at least partly been responsible for the persistent inflation the world's been struggling to combat. So now that we're basically at year's end, we thought we'd take a look back. Just hours ago, Russian forces began their attack. President Vladimir Putin warning other countries that any attempt to interfere with the Russian action. Russia is grinding out a victory in eastern Ukraine, with its troops advancing behind barrages of rockets and artillery. Tonight, Ukrainian forces say they're now making stunning gains to the south, liberating two territories in the occupied Kherson region. Just days after a victory. So, Adam. First off, I wanted to ask about sanctions. There's been a lot of talk about these kind of unprecedented sanctions. And yeah, I just wonder how much are sanctions affecting the Russian economy right now? I've seen big analyses on both sides uh, that don't exactly acknowledge one another. So I thought you could maybe help us synthesize. Have we learned anything new also in general about boundaries of what sanctions can achieve? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good moment to do this question as a kind of roundup, because we're about to enter a new phase in the ongoing campaign of sanctions against Russia, right, with caps on oil prices and efforts to prevent oil shipments uh, in European tankers. So we're going to have to see how that's going to work out. But looking back, I think from experience so far, what we've learned is that if you don't blockade, sanction or boycott a country's major exports, and that country has a huge trade surplus, then financial sanctions by themselves are shocking and they isolate an economy from the world, but they're unlikely to do real damage unless that country has really poorly managed, has a really poorly managed financial sector. And Russia doesn't. Its central bank is very competent. So it basically weathered the storm unleashed by the financial sanctions that were adopted really in the first days of, of the war. It, what's really biting in this first 10-month period of the war is the West's ability to throttle 
Russia's imports, so their ability to purchase our stuff. That hurts our exporters, of course, but it really deprives them of access to key technology, to spare parts for maintaining their their aircraft fleet, uh, medication, a whole range of really vital imports. And that means they have to look for large-scale diversions so they can still trade with Turkey, India, China. They're resorting to smuggling uh, of key substitutes. Um, and this is clearly a deeply inefficient second best from their point of view. And so what we've seen, I think, is a dramatic slowdown in the Russian economy. It's not perhaps the implosion, the kind of heart attack that many hoped for, but whereas, you know, this time last year in 2021 and, you know, 12 months ago, we were still expecting the Russian economy to grow at maybe 2.8% uh, this year. It's probably going to contract by 4% this year. And whereas we were once upon a time expecting it to grow just over 2% in 2023, it's contracting most likely next year by 4%. So it's not a collapse of the Russian economy by any means, but, but you know, two consecutive years of negative 4% growth is, is a very serious hit to the Russian economy. Will it cripple them? No. Will it stop the war by itself? No, it won't. But does it inflict punishment and pain on Russia? Yes. And clearly, over the long run, this is terrible for Russia's growth prospects, because why would any foreign investor invest in Russia at this point? It'd be incredibly difficult to do. So it looks like at this point, this is going to be an extended war. And as you mentioned, Russia is surviving. But how is Ukraine doing at this point? I mean, there's talk of reconstruction, money being uh, gathered to that for that purpose. But yeah, in light of Russian attacks on Ukraine's home front, is that kind of talk premature? I, I think, unfortunately, it really is. Because if the military campaign of this year has gone apps overwhelmingly Ukraine's way in the sense of a succession of defensive victories, the turning back of the Russian offensive around Kiev, for instance, and then the reconquering of Ukrainian territory, which we saw in the fall on the economic side, it's a very unequal competition. If we saw a 4% contraction in the Russian economy, we're probably talking about a 30 to 35% contraction in Ukraine's economy. Right now, Ukraine's economic situation, its social situation, especially in this cold weather, is getting more and more serious, I mean, literally by the week. Um, it, it's profoundly precarious, I think, in two basic respects. One is money, and the other one is if you what you might want to call the real economy. On the money side, inflation in in Ukraine is running at over 26%. They have struggled to put together a viable mechanism for funding the war effort. They are receiving subsidy from the outside, but that only covers part of the spending. And the best news that we've had in the last couple of weeks is that apparently on the 8th of December, the Ukrainian central bank announced a deal under which Ukraine's domestic national banks, the private banks that operate in Ukraine, will be incentivized to buy government debt as a way of meeting their reserve requirements. And so what the Ukrainians are trying to do is to create a domestic market for government war bonds, if you like, which will then be hoovered up by the Ukrainian banking system. This creates a really dangerous connection between public finances and private finance in Ukraine, but needs must. They're in a dire situation, what they want to avoid having to do, which is what they've periodically had to do over the last couple of months, is to simply crank up the printing presses in the central bank and print money to pay for the war, which is a recipe for total financial disaster. So perhaps with these domestic stabilisation measures and promises of more money from the outside next year. The IMF is trying to patch together a series of deals. Ukraine may be able to stabilise or at least prevent a further descent into chaos on the 
financial side, and that matters because a collapsing monetary economy, a collapsing financial economy, rampant inflation will in the not very long run undermine the viability of your real economy and the real economy, the production, the delivery of services, the logistics side of Ukraine is under huge stress anyway. So I said already they've suffered somewhere between a 30 and 35 percent implosion of GDP. Numbers get a little bit kind of vague when you get into that kind of territory. That is an absolutely savage contraction. It's as though the lockdown measures of 2020 had gone on into the second half of the year and there had been no offsetting subsidy in the rest of the world. So it's really a, a huge shock. It's it's thought that only about 60% of Ukrainians remain in the jobs that they had at the beginning of the war. About 40% have been churned, either have become refugees or, or have been have lost their jobs and are looking for work or, or unemployed. And the crucial thing, of course, is that Russia has finally, and to some extent I think it's a mystery why they didn't start the war by doing this, but has finally begun to target uh, Ukraine's energy infrastructure without which no modern economy can function. And at various points recently, up to about 50% of Ukraine's energy infrastructure has been knocked out. If those Russian attacks continue, then the situation of Ukraine's economy from a productive point of view becomes extremely serious next year, as early perhaps as early next year. And I think it's really telling that Zelensky has asked Ukrainian refugees not to come home, to stay out of the country. And when a state is literally asking its citizens to remain abroad because it cannot provide basic infrastructure services for them at home, that is a truly kind of existential statement about the kind of crisis that the Ukrainian state is in. Do you think this is something that outsiders can help with? I mean, the, this metaphor of a Marshall Plan, do you think that's appropriate here that Europe and the United States can sort of step into this crisis you're describing in Ukraine? Marshall Plan's a bad metaphor. We should maybe do an episode about the Marshall Plan. It comes up so much. It's like Marshall Plan was two years after the end of World War II. Um, what we're really talking about is the sort of relief that, say, military engineering services do on the ground in Germany and west of Europe almost immediately that they take occupation of the territory because what Ukraine is struggling to do and with brilliant improvisational talent is to maintain basic services in the middle of a war. That's really the priority here. So scrambling, you know, maintenance personnel and equipment training to the uh, Ukrainian uh, electricity system is, I think, the absolute priority, presumably providing them with anti-aircraft weapons with which to shoot down the rockets and drones that their systems are being attacked with, probably an even higher priority. All of this requires an open-handed um, spending policy to sustain Ukraine's war effort. And we're not talking in the end about huge amounts of money. I mean, even according to the Ukrainians' own estimates, which are no doubt not, you know, low-balling, but, you know, they they had $5 billion dollars a month, um, it would see them through. So to turn to the rest of Europe, I'm curious if you think Europe has been revealed to be stronger or weaker than would have been thought one year ago. I mean, on the one hand, its dependence on Russian gas has become clear to everyone now that that gas has been cut off. On the other hand, Europe has managed a mostly unified response to the war. They're staying strong in the face of all these threats from Russia. And I guess on the third hand, uh, they've also mostly depended on the United States, it seems to me, for organizing a military response. So which way does the balance ultimately tilt, Adam, if you were to assess Europe's overall strength? Yeah, thinking about this, I mean, it seems to me what it really brings home is that, you know, 
power or however we you know think about this strength you know it's multidimensional right so i think that's the and it doesn't really easily reduce to a common denominator there are moments when it does but but i think it is genuinely the case that that europe has shown real strength resilience improvisational skill in handling the you know abrupt and dramatic reduction in imports of gas from russia which is a huge challenge um Europe's situation is far better, I think, than many people anticipated it being. The the gas tanks are full, and thank God for that, because it's really freezing here right now. Um, if we were hoping for a you know a warm winter, it better arrive soon, because it's certainly not here now. Uh, they've also avoided obvious political splits. I mean, even the change of government in Italy, which was greeted with horror at the time, because one of the things that brought Draghi's government down was disagreements about you know, spending and how Italy should respond to the energy crisis. But Maloney's government has fallen squarely into line. The signal exception to this is Hungary. And in a sense, I think Hungary serves everyone as a kind of, you know, as a, the spectre at the feast. It's the exception that proves the rule. It's, it's serving as a way of, as it were, bringing solidarity together. But yes, you're absolutely right. On the other hand, what's also been just dramatically exposed is is how um, militarily weak Europe is, how difficult it has been to supply Ukraine with equipment, in part because the Europeans just don't have any equipment that would be relevant to supply them with. Um, and to that extent, yes, I think one of the clear lessons from this is that whatever vision there is for Europe in the future, it either requires a dramatic upscaling and bringing as it were, Europe's defence capacities into line with its other capacities, or Ultimately, we're talking about a twin track model in which, as it were, the EU's responsibility remains the civilian side and the political side, and NATO with the United States as its backstop is the fundamental structure around which European security is organised. One or the other, right? One requires massive European investment and new commitment, and the other would, as it were, perpetuate the status quo insofar as America is actually willing to provide that to the Europeans. Yeah, that brings us to the United States, and I'm curious. Looking back, what should we make of the Biden administration's seemingly organizing principle of foreign policy, this opposition that they've been drawing between democracies and autocracies or authoritarian governments? Has Russia's invasion served as evidence that authoritarian states are just structurally a threat to democracies in the way that the Biden administration has been depicting, that authoritarians can't be trusted in kind of basic political, diplomatic, or even economic terms. Yeah, this this always kind of leaves me like scratching my head a little bit. Cause do you think they can be for real about this democracies versus autocracies? They held a summit. They held I know, a whole but like, summit it's, on this. It's so, it's so head-scratching. I mean, not to say, I mean, terrible, you know, end up sounding like the kind of bossy professor, but it's so silly. Mm. It's such a bad, it's such a bad formulation. I mean, you know, your democracies range from... You know, the kind of high-functioning European models at one end by way of America's own highly ramshackle system to, like, Modi's India. Like, that kind of spectrum. And the concept of autocracy seems to me even more problematic. Like, she and Putin and... I mean, the whole thing just seems staggeringly archaic and uh, as, a, as a mode of, of analysis. Um, you know, and then, and then de facto, the situation of, has, of course, forced Washington repeatedly to turn to partners in managing key global you know problems up to and including Saudi Arabia which which 
Shirley Ticks, you know, really would be fairly described as an autocracy. Um, you know, not that they've been terribly helpful, but nevertheless, you know, in the first instance, that's where Washington goes. This isn't to say the Biden administration doesn't have an organizing principle to its foreign policy. I just think the autocracies, democracies thing is, I don't even know whether to take it seriously as an ideological sort of screen, because, I mean, fundamentally, surely the organizing principle is the confrontation with China. I mean, that's the organizing principle. And, and everything is really kind of subordinated to that, including very much, I think, policy towards the Ukrainian war, because the original idea was to try and woo, the original Biden administration idea was to try and woo, I think, Putin away from China to concentrate on China and to reach a modus vivendi with Russia. And instead, given you know Putin's reckless and criminal attack on Ukraine, Washington has had to make the best of the historic opportunity presented to them by Ukraine's resistance, which is to back up the Ukrainian resistance and turn them into the hammer and anvil with which you inflict a huge and humiliating reverse on the Russians, which renders them far less interesting to China as a potential ally. I mean, I think that's that's my read. I, I, mm. What I'm really struck by is how difficult the Biden administration has found it beyond that basic logic to articulate really effective alliance strategy with either the Europeans and even more, I think, with the East Asian allies. So finally, I wanted to ask whether you think the war in Ukraine has made it easier or harder for Ukraine to integrate with the rest of Europe. And I'm thinking here, at least in part, of the surge in nationalism across Ukraine as an entirely understandable byproduct of the war. But, you know, will that experience and that nationalism produce a kind of mismatch with the political culture and the political and economic priorities of the rest of Europe? Yeah, I mean, this is the move over the last 12 months um, with regard to this question of Ukraine's long-term standing with regard to the EU and NATO, but we'll just focus on the EU, is truly astonishing because, you know, the beginning of beginning of the year, as recently as the beginning of the year, I think conventional opinion in Europe, certainly Western Europe, would have laughed at the idea that Ukraine was, a, you know, imminently going to be invited to join the EU or begin the process of applying for and qualifying for EU membership. But that's exactly what happened in the first six months of 2022. Um, it's staggering. It's staggering also from a deeper historical perspective in that Ukraine has been you know, involved in very long-running conflicts, not just with Russia, but of course with its other neighbours, most notably Poland, with which it actually fought a war shortly after World War I. And modern Poland and modern Ukraine are made out of the redistribution of territory, which has been variously argued over by both sides over, over for as long as there have been nationalisms of Polish and Ukrainian type. And, and one of the effects of the war is to have actually forged a remarkable alliance between Polish parties of all stripes, not merely the nationalist ones, and, and Ukraine. And what unifies them is, is an anti-Russian stance. Um, so, so really, in the space of 12 months, the entire question has been turned on its head, such that now I think Bian Ponzon's opinion in the EU is quite firmly committed to not just, you know, treating um, Ukraine accession as serious, but Georgia potentially as well. The, the Balkans, we're in a sense embarking on, remarkably, an entire second wave of Eastern expansion of the, of the EU. And you can't do that and take that seriously without contemplating 
the question that you pose, Cam, which is, you know, how do how does one imagine reconciling the the politics of Eastern Europe with, you know, what you described as, as it were, the the, the 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 political culture of the rest of Europe? And I think the answer of those pushing hard for this expansionary agenda is they aim to change the political culture of the EU. They, the, the, you know, could you square it with the old Franco-German axis and these remarkably condescending comments that you would get from the, you know, the, both the Germans and the French about the old and the new Europe and the way in which, you know, the people in the East simply didn't understand the ways of, of the EU. You know, if, under those premises, this wasn't ever going to work. But clearly, the ambition of the Baltics, of Poland, and the Nordics as well is, in fact, to reconceive the EU. And we are beginning to see responses from France as well with this this idea of a much broader political union. Um, you know, it's a real moment of ferment, really, in the thinking about Europe's political structure. Once we get past the, the war stage, the question is where that will lead. And I think that's very open-ended. It's not as though relations between Western and Eastern Europe have been easy within the existing framework. Poland has been an incredibly uncomfortable partner, not, not on a scale of Hungary, but nevertheless extremely difficult to deal with. And more concretely, of course, actually organizing the accession of a war-damaged Ukraine to the EU and raising it to the standard that would mean that you could, for instance, contemplate having Ukraine in the labor market of the EU, which would require wages there to rise to levels which would not be vastly lower than the rest of Europe, is a huge undertaking. It involves the mobilization at the very least of hundreds of billions of euros. And so the challenge is gigantic. Once this happens, though, it totally changes the balance of the EU because between them, Poland and Ukraine would have, broadly speaking, in say if you were doing a weighted voting operation in the council, they would essentially have the same voting share as Germany. So the consequence of this going forward, we've stumbled into a truly dramatic reconceptualization. And the moment, I thought, when Schultz gave his speech in Prague in the fall, I mean, so much has happened so quickly this year that, you know, historic shifts have just shot past without anyone really pausing to consider what's going on. But a position which would have been unthinkable a year ago, namely that Germany should embrace wholeheartedly you know, a dramatic Eastern expansion of the EU and NATO, effectively. It's just a huge shock. And we the, the dust, it will take years to settle, begs the question of what a potential final deal with the Russians will look like, begs the question of what America's relationship is going to be like, because both Ukraine and Poland are, of course, far more focused on the military and national security alliance with America, and frankly, are not very interested in developing European structures of security because they don't trust them. The ones they trust, uh, what they trust is American power. Okay, I come away from this conversation persuaded that this is a, uh, has been a historic moment, this war. And uh, yeah, it sounds like big changes, not only in Ukraine and Russia, but potentially in Europe and maybe even the United States as well. But uh, okay, we do need to end this conversation here, but we will be back in a second to talk about snow. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and 
I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hi, and welcome back. The next data point is 46 million as in 46 million square kilometers, which is the amount of land on Earth that is covered by snow at some point during the year that amounts to 31% of the Earth's land area, apparently. I just learned that in doing some research, but I was pretty surprised. Among that land was much of Northern Europe this past week, including London, which rarely sees snow. So, yeah, we thought we'd look at the economics of snow in general. And, yeah, Adam, it's snowing considerably less than it used to in much of the world as a result of climate change. Has that affected the industry dedicated to clearing away snow? Have the stock prices, say, of snowplow companies declined in recent years? Or are municipalities dedicating less money to snow removal in their budgets? It turns out to be just an unexpectedly fascinating topic, this. So, yes, in general, it is true, as you'd expect, that due to global warming, there is less snow. It's not a terribly dramatic shift yet. It's the glacier story, I think, which everyone has focused on, has a different feel to it than the snow story, because snow is precipitation and glaciers, you know, ice formation uh, over time. Precipitation is much more variable. Um, but nevertheless, the American data show a 0.19% per annum reduction in snowfall over time since the 1930s. So slow creeping reduction in snowfall. And if you project that forward, then you do indeed conclude that large parts of the world which currently need to make provision for extensive snow plowing may not in future have to do so. So I actually found a study by... Uh, Bergen uh, in Norway, the second largest city in Norway. Norwegian cities aren't big. There's only two, like Oslo and Bergen. And Bergen, um, far, far north, 
280,000 people of whom about 160,000 have to travel to work every day, spends quite a lot of money on clearing ice and snow. They would save the equivalent of about $4.5 million a year, they figure, by 2030, 2040, if current warming trends happen. So there are people actually doing hmm. the math on this. But once you get deep into the snowplow, slow clearing <laughs> industry thing, which, the story gets much more complicated. Which, which you did. So, right. so first of all, <laughs> first of all, what delivers storms and massive snowfall, which are the things which cause the trouble, are you know complex weather patterns dictated by the polar vortex. And the polar vortex is in fact moving in a more aggressive and dramatic way as a result of climate change than it did before. Point number one. So even if the overall level of snowfall is falling, the drama of the snowfall may increase, a little bit like with warming and hurricanes in the, in the southern hemisphere or towards the equator. The second point is that the thing that really causes uh, chaos is the freeze-thaw cycle. So the most dangerous phenomenon is not when you've just got solidly packed, deeply frozen snow, but when you have the phenomenon of, of, of snowfall thawing and then refreezing overnight so that then you have you know, sheets of ice, essentially, which are, which are quite difficult to clear. They're, they're harder to break. And that is increasing uh, with warmth because you spend more of the time in the precarious boundary between freezing and thawing and then freezing again. And so the city of Montreal is in fact now involved in quite serious debates about how they are going to deal with situations like the one I think they had in 2015, where they had like 500 people fall down and break their legs on a single day because they went through one of these uh, freeze-thaw, uh, freeze-cycles. So I think that's the kind of complexity that we're, that we're looking at here is... And that, of course, poses budgetary issues because how do you justify, if you like, retaining a large clearing capacities when the snowfall is becoming less predictable. So there is a solution for this in the market, which is snowfall insurance. So one of the ways in which you can handle and the way in which snow clearing companies do handle, it's a bit like crop insurance that farmers take out. So if you're a snow clearing company, you can insure yourself against a winter, a warm winter by taking out snowfall insurance. In a sense, what you'd expect municipalities to do as well is to, you know, adopt various hedging financial strategies so as to, the, to justify maintaining adequate capacity. One of the reasons why Britain, for instance, struggles with snow is it doesn't regularly encounter it. So it simply doesn't make sense from the position of a city like London to maintain the kind of slow clearing capacity that New York does because it's not going to, it doesn't predictably, you know, uh, have this problem. And so climate change is going to make this entire calculus of how you prepare for the rare event of a potentially devastating snow thaw ice storm type phenomenon much more difficult. Okay, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it sounds like tactically even you'd need to clear it faster. Always, always the best thing to do anyway. Yeah. The quicker you get in there and the more clear, the less likely you are to get icing, the easier it does. But this is a, that's just the experience from living in New England. I mean, yeah, you leave it out there, you're lazy that first day, you really come to regret it. So is there a measurable effect of snowstorms on an overall economy? Can the costs even be quantified per inch of snow, say? And do people then in that case just become less productive overall when it snows? Or is there additional economic activity in the form of sled purchases for kids and auto repairs from crashed cars, that kind of thing? 
Now, this seems like a theme we come back to quite a lot on this podcast. You know, when is something that's bad good for the economy? And it's true for winter storms as well. Like, so winter storms are shock events to an economy. They interrupt normal transport. They interrupt the ordinary flow of business. So that's bad for the economy. On the other hand, people take out more insurance. So the insurance business thrives. People stock up, you know, famously with you know water and toilet paper ahead of time if you, you know, one of these storms is predicted. So that actually drives a demand surge. Overall, because they are an interruption to the normal division of labor, they do cost money. There's no doubt about this. The overall net effect of, of storms as such is, is, is negative. It is, however, small. So if we think about natural disasters as a low hundred billion dollar kind of phenomenon in general, then a snowstorm is a low single digit billion event. Um, so if you add up the, you know, I saw a costing for uh, snowfall economic losses in the US in 2014 across all of the major states that are affected, the total sum came to about $2 billion. You could add it up in a particularly cold winter. This is in relation to a US economy, which is $17 trillion strong. So we're not talking about significant losses here. The property damage, the interruption to economic activity is much less severe than it is, say, for a hurricane. But it isn't the storm and the snow that kills you, it's the cold. And the cold in and of itself is, as we, you know, when we did that episode about cooling, um, you know, cooling and air conditioning are just as essential in some ways as heating to allow people to function normally. But there's no doubt at all, if you look at excess mortality, that it is the cold that kills at a much higher rate than the heat. So far, anyway, in this current stage, before we get to really severe global warming, in most of the world. And so in those terms, there is a very considerable cost in terms of human life to the sort of weather that we're experiencing on a day like this in, in Europe. More old, especially elderly vulnerable people will die of pneumonia in badly heated and badly insulated apartments um, for every degree of cent you know, centigrade or Fahrenheit that we go closer to freezing. And so that is where the real damage gets done, not so much in the snowstorms. Yeah, you're putting a real damper on the snow day for kids. Uh, should be thinking of <laughs> thinking of granny. Die, die. <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry to be so po-faced <laughs> about everything. You're enjoying going down that hill. You know, it's like you know, there's, 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 yeah, exactly. There's, <laughs> That's, there's two sides to everything. There's, uh, unfortunately, there's you no know, such thing as a free lunch. Um, um, but uh, yeah, how about the industry of producing fake snow? I know that is a thing with climate change. Uh, I mean, is it getting harder for ski resorts to make ends meet these days with, with all the new costs? It's, it's dramatic in many cases. I mean, if you take the Winter Olympics as an instance, um, uh, none of the recent Olympic Games could have been conducted without artificial snow generation. Um, and there are entire ski areas in Europe now, the Trentino in Italy, for instance, where around 70% of the snow that people are enjoying 70 to 80% is artificially generated. And it is a huge effort. It isn't, I discovered by reading and thinking about this, quite the nightmare that you'd expect, because you don't do this in, you know, five degree, 10 degree Celsius, well above freezing temperature. The snow generators operate at or below the freezing point. What you're compensating for is the fact it hasn't rained. What you're compensating for is not that it's not cold enough, but that it hasn't been any precipitation. 
And so what you're really doing is it's a bit like those misting machines they have in Singapore or Hong Kong, where what you essentially do is rely on evaporation effects. You essentially blow a wet mist into a blower. And given the underlying cold air, you're not cooling anything. As the water evaporates, it cools itself, essentially. And so you can create snow for essentially the same electric cost as air conditioning or blowing, right? So the vast majority of the effort is not going into cooling the water. It's going into simply expelling it uh, and pumping it. And that is also where the major environmental cost is, the amounts of water that you need to, to produce the artificial snow are absolutely gigantic. And the resulting snow is not of the natural complex loose structure, it's too uniform because it comes through this mechanical process. So it's very heavy. So it sits on the ground in dense packs, ultimately. It doesn't insulate in the same way and it applies more pressure to the ground. So it's a you know, hugely invasive kind of uh, uh, activity. Um, you know, it requires literally millions and millions of cubic meters of water um, to, to, create the, to create the artificial snow. Just curious if you happen to know what such a machine costs. I mean, if I want, could I get one privately and sort of have snow for my kids? At rare, it snows so rarely in Berlin now, but if I wanted to make my own snow, could I manage? So the cost uh, in total for creating artificial snow is in the order of 130, 140,000 euros, or make that dollars per hectare. Okay. Okay. So a bit out of my price range. You know, it's it's uh, yeah, it's a <laughs> it's substantial like a, investment. A bit more than yeah. for I'd Mind want you, to do for my daughter's birthday I party. Know, I don't I don't know whether you have a hectare. Your back garden. There's a playground big. here. I don't know how big that is, but well, I, mean, I think um, it would be a couple of tens of thousands of euros to to snow coach the, the yeah. kids' playground area. No, here. no, no. Maybe maybe uh, save for a wedding or something. I don't know. We'll see. We'll uh, we'll see when we get to that. But um. Yeah, this got me thinking about the economics, I guess, of skiing in general. And I, I mean, personally, I have this association of thinking of skiing as a sport for the wealthy. But is that prejudice justified? I mean, in the overall composition of the world's regular skiers, if you were to manage to group those skiers together, would a majority be considered rich relative to their respective societies? Yeah, it absolutely is. It's up there with golfing and sailing as a, a relatively elite sport. It's overwhelmingly white as a result as well in the United States context. And indeed, it is really, it is a result, it is also barely expanded in the United States. The number of skiers is not substantially larger now than it was in the 1970s. And this is a result of the basic mechanics. You need a lot of equipment. You need to get to relatively remote places. You need, when you're there, then to be ferried around by lifts and so on. But astonishingly, and this is really one of the more remarkable stories I've come across in researching these episodes it's also the effect of monopoly so major ski resorts require substantial investment in terms of the hotels and lifts and so on and so you need capital to do them and there are major companies that that operate the resorts so in in europe the the major resort operator is the french compagnie des Alpes group which was created in the 1980s and and operates many of the famous french um, uh, skiing areas but the real the juggernaut in the global skiing world is Vail, 
which is a group that you know emerged from Colorado and has set about systematically hoovering up exclusive rights, literally buying mountains across the ski resorts of the United States. And they now control 50% of the American skiing market. And their strategy is basically to simply screw up the price of skiing to make it a more and more exclusive, but for their market, more and more profitable business. It's, it's absolutely astonishing that this you know, leisure pursuit should have become the target for this remarkable monopolistic uh, effort. And it's one that I was, you know, as a non-skier, completely unaware of. Yeah, this sounds like a James Bond plot. This shadowy company called Vail, from Vail, Colorado, is buying mountains around Literally, the world. Uh, uh, main, uh, mainly okay. so far in North America, some in Europe and in Australia. Okay. And then they, you can buy a card, you can buy this ski permit, which allows you to ski and encourage you to ski across all of the Vale resorts. And so by means of that, as it were, people, you know, rush to buy these permits at the beginning of, beginning of the skiing season. It's great business for Vale because then they get, you know, they, they have all of the risk covered because they don't know how much snow is going to fall. But if you buy the permit, they, they sell about a million of these permits at the beginning of each season for you know close to a thousand dollars now per permit and that generates their revenue flow and then on the back of that they as it were hire bunches of enthusiastic ski crazy young people to staff the resorts whose main compensation comes in the form that they get access free access to skiing on these highly otherwise highly exclusive resorts well uh, that makes sense then about why i think of it as a sport for the wealthy well finally I guess to end the conversation, I'm curious whether snow has any economic value as a natural resource of its own. I mean, can it be repurposed for any other productive uses beyond recreation, skiing, that kind of thing that we've been discussing? You know, like snowmen or igloos. I don't or or (laughs) I don't know, snow melt even, or other uses. Or I don't know, it's got me thinking about the sort of reflective properties of white snow. I don't know. No, I'm joking. No, obviously. No, absolutely. The snow melt is Totally fundamental to human civilization. Like you know, okay. if you if you think about the Ganges Valley civilizations, they're they're feeding off the water that runs off the Himalayas. That one sixth of the world's population relies directly on snowmelt water. But since all of the Ganges does, that kind of seems like a low low side estimate. I mean, what is the relevance of that precipitation coming in the form of snow? I mean, if it were if it simply were a rainfall, rather because it, than it's snow. released at different yeah. times of year, right? So this is the crucial thing, I think, because obviously there is also the the a monsoon that that sweeps across, but the the snow melt follows a different rhythm, so it provides you with water at different times of year. It's one of these natural services, natural ecosystem services people talk about in environmental economics, which have no market price but without which, essentially, life as we know it is unimaginable. And so when you start doing the, well, let's put a price tag on life as we know it, you rapidly actually do accumulate towards trillions of dollars. You know, $17 trillion being the kind of benchmark for the US, you know, 17 trusts, it's heading towards 20 now. Like, we're talking very serious money indeed, yeah. I feel like we're having this effective altruism conversation again. What is the price of all life as a whole? But 
Okay, I guess we should leave it there for now, but I guess, yeah, you mentioned snowmen, but I guess the memories of making snowmen and of sledding, those are, those are priceless, right? Exactly. <laughs> those, are, those are, how can one put a price tag on those? In any case, yeah, it did not snow here, but I guess we're going to go get a cup of tea. We'll leave the conversation there for now, but uh, yeah, see you next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. (music) 
everyday ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.